Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Sunday morning matinee where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. And today we've had just about enough of Oscars and new movies for right now. So we're going to go into the vault and we're going to catch up with 1969's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. My name is Matt and I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. I'm Adam and I'm the minister of Overbrook Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And in our first segment, Justification by Faith, we're going to talk about how Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid might help us think about life in the church and in the world. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to discuss how Butch and Sundance might help us understand the lectionary passages for May 23rd, which is Pentecost Sunday. And in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're reading or watching or following. So, Adam, you wanted to watch something old and cool, and after a long series of text messages back and forth, (laughs) we landed on 1969's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which is definitely old, and I guess by the sheer virtue of having Paul Newman and Robert Redford on screen at the same time, is still pretty cool. Yeah, we could still go back and watch, what, Castle of Cagliostra? Yeah, this is like the, 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 the best Steve McQueen movie that Steve McQueen was never in, I think. Um, yeah. Uh, This is William Goldman's breakout screenplay, which is based on his original research into the real historical figures of Butch and Sundance and tracks these two Old West outlaws as they run smack up against the closing of the era in which they previously plied their trade. It's an odd movie in a lot of ways. It it befits the sort of clash of old and new Hollywood that shows up on screen. In some ways, it's an ode to the Old West and a lament for the passing of time. In other ways, this movie is as much a work of 1969 and a kind of countercultural hippie aesthetic as anything you'll ever see, with Burt Bacharach's raindrops keep falling on my head right at the center of it. It's kind of a comedy and kind of a tragedy, and honestly, it's kind of a mess, but maybe it's our kind of mess, Adam. So I'm, I'm curious <laughs> for your thoughts. What was it like revisiting Butch and Sundance? How much of this movie did you remember? How much did you rediscover? And... How did it help you think about our work in ministry in the world? Yeah. So I I was glad to revisit this movie. I I remember it fondly. Um I haven't watched it in over a decade. So I it was I was grateful to revisit it in part because it's it's always nice to spend some time with um with Robert Redford and Paul Newman, who themselves remain absolutely electric in this movie. Um I think I first loved this movie because I was told to love it by uh, people who did really indeed love it, but who probably saw it at a time when it was very important to them. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a strange mix of movie, as you, as you noted. It, it seems sort of caught between lots of different things. It's introducing new um, genre conventions that have become very 
common to us. The buddy picture, for instance, um, finds, I think, really some of its source and tone in in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, right? Like there's no lethal weapon without mm. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yeah, sure. um, no rush I, hour, Adam. No rush the, hour. No, yeah. well, forgive me. No rush hour. But that, um, but I think I loved it because people who saw it and saw its um, its sort of genre in between gathering magnetic force that could sort of gather the old and the new and put it together um, loved it so much that I was supposed to love it. So then, you know, as someone who was like young and into film, like you had to love butch cassidy and and it's not that great as a movie but i i still think i really like it but i like it for different reasons now i, I think this is a more mature love i think it's a more thoughtful reckoning of what is a flawed but i think still a fun movie um i also just want to mention that it's it is sort of the beginning of recognizing writers as being forces on movies. Um, you know, I, I, we talked about Mank in our last, um, in our last podcast. Um, and a central plot point that we didn't really talk about in Mank is that Mank had to fight to get credit for writing um, Citizen Kane. Um, and that was, just gives you a sense of sort of like how writers were understood in Hollywood. But by the fact that by the time that William Goldman is writing Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, it's major news that he's being paid as much as he is to write this script. And so I, I think basically as I come back to this movie, what I like about it is I like the performances. I, I like its sort of strange, ragged um, messiness at the edges. Uh, I, I think um, there's some there's some real charm in this movie. And there's maybe something to say about um, what it means to try and find a vocation or pra practice a vocation in a world that doesn't value it any longer, or there is no place to do it any longer. And, um, you know, I, I think in probably the film criticism world, Matt, there's, there's like some good Marxist who has taken this movie to talk about class and the sort of oligarchy of, of Harriman and his railroad or something like that. But I th actually think that's probably thinking too much about this movie. I think it's, it's, it's really a buddy picture about two people who are trying to survive and don't. So, um, and it doesn't have to be any more than that. It's not the what 71st best movie that AFI put it in. Seventy third is what I was what I saw today when I was researching around. But, yeah, seventy. That seems it's not the seventy third best movie, um, but it is an important movie. Um, and yeah, I have I have lots of thoughts about its in betweenness. But but let's hear from you. What did what did you think watching it? I thought it was a mess, as I've said. Um, I think because, uh, and as, as I said to you in the pre-show, that this this movie feels a little bit like the Western equivalent of the um, Jesus Christ Superstar movie from about the same era, where it's like both it has it has its one foot kind of in old Hollywood um, studio production. So that movie is sort of one part you know, uh, the robe or one of these kind of old Bible epics, 10 commandments, the greatest story that I ever told or something yeah, like but that. Even that one's even a little bit later, but yeah, exactly that kind of production and one foot in like, um, something 
right out of Hate Ashbury, right? So, 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 something that's very much inflected by not just New Hollywood, but a specific kind of a, a, a specific kind of hippie feel. Um, that it's countercultural, I, right? Yeah. That that I think shows up here in Butch Cassidy, maybe not in equal parts, but it's definitely there. Um, I, I suspect this movie is more interesting if the movies you have grown up on are the westerns that predate this movie by 30 years. So, And I think it's less interesting now that we have seen 50 years following of <laughs> other ways of wrestling with that genre. Um, and indeed with kind of industrial Hollywood as a whole. Yeah, so in better think, ways, really. I mean, yeah. more inventive ways. Yeah. Um, uh, there are things about this movie that date terribly. I was watching it with Sarah, and we got about 20 minutes in to the point when um, when Sundance is first um, meeting up with Catherine Ross, his girlfriend, and we don't know she's his girlfriend at the time, and he has a gun to her and is, like, forcing her to undress. Um, and then there's sort of the reveal that actually it's all consensual because they know each other and he's coming by for a visit. And that scene just is is all kinds of disgusting. Yeah, it's wrong. It is absolute BS. It was, and I suspect it was BS in 1969. It's BS now. It sucks. It's such a huge misfire in this movie. Yeah, so I, it took me a long time to kind of come back to the film at all after that point. Um, But I, but I think, and like, like, and like Sundance, right? Like, because he has his own likability, but Golly, it's that hard poison to find the it. well for a really long time. Yeah, um, but I, but I think you're right that there are there are some interesting threads here. I think the I, I think one of my favorite Western tropes is um, the the world is passing away and is moving past us, and who are we going to be in this new place? which I think is not unique to Butch and Sundance, but is well done here. And I think we, obviously that's something we, we should we should really dig into. Um, and, and I think there are some parts of the filmmaking here that I really enjoy. This movie spends a long time with Butch and Sundance fleeing from the sort of super gang that, that is that is out to get them over hill and valley um, and desert and, and stream. And honestly, I kind of love that part of the movie. It, too. <laughs> it's really, it's really sparse. It's really beautiful. Um, there's some speculation in the production history that like they just got a lot of really pretty footage in the can and couldn't decide which part of it to cut, so they just kept all of it. So it goes on like for an uncomfortably long time. But I kind of dug it. That and and there's some parts of it that I think really really work. But it didn't doesn't feel like a cohesive whole to me. Yeah. I, so I want to say one last word about this before we actually move into the, some of the thematic stuff in the movie. It, it, this is the sort of star system of the old age Hollywood crashing into the auteur visions of the 70s, right? Like where yes. where you, the filmmaker is like, I'm an artist and I'm not beholden to the studio. And, um, and if you give $400,000 to uh, William Goldman to write this script, he's going to want the script to be like, to sing, to actually do something, to be noticed. <laughs> um, 
And so it's this like sort of mainstream and the countercultural meeting together in this movie. It's it's old age in the sense that you you find two stars and you put them in a movie and you bank on it, right? Like if they're yeah. appealing, people will show up, and it is appealing. Um, I think what it did in 1969 is it gathered all of the older people who liked the westerns of the 40s and 50s, but hated the hippies of Haight Ashbury, right, and didn't believe in their countercultural message. And it gathered them into the same movie theater as all of those same hippies who hated the the previous generation and their vision of the world. And together they enjoyed a common piece of art, which is which is a sort of it happened. That thing happens from time to time, right, where you have this thing and in the moment it's able to gather people um, in some measure of agreement uh, in my youth. I don't know if you remember the juggernaut that was the Eric Clapton unplugged album. Oh gosh. Yeah. Right. It was the thing that kids and and adults could agree on. (laughs) Like when you're driving around in the CD player, you put on the Eric Clapton because everyone could kind of like dig it. And I think Butch and Sundance kind of sits in that same place. The problem is um, once those generations are no longer the thing that movies are being marketed to. They, and you come back and rewatch this movie. It's really hard to see how that um, that sort of magnetic force that pulled these two people these two people groups together actually worked. Like the magic doesn't work on me because I'm neither one of those groups. Yeah. And um, and I look at it and I could see that it might have had some magic in it, but once those generations pass away from the sort of cultural zeitgeist like what do you do like it doesn't it doesn't sing any longer i so here's so before we talk about the movie here's my question for you is there something that we love right now matt that you think like previous generations are going to look at and be like that's what is that <laughs> i assume most of the things we love will fall into that category <laughs> Right. I mean, like I'm really, I was really into, you know, I was really into Endgame. I like that movie. Are they going to look at it and they'd be like, this made over $7 billion or something crazy like that? Like, like honestly, my nine-year-old, the nine-year-old boy who lives in my house does not care about Marvel movies at all. And he so associates it with like the, the, the movies of his parents, even though to me, they still feel new because I was an established film dork long before the MCU ever got it, ever came together. So like it all, it all still feels like I'm eavesdropping on kids movies, but to the kid in my house, they got, they're, they're not his. Yeah. That's interesting. So let's talk about this movie. Um, yeah. thematically when, when you watched it, were there theological themes or something about sort of your life and ministry that made sense to you? You know, I, so, sometimes on this show, I feel like I, I run the risk of sounding a little bit like, uh, grandpa Simpson, um, who in one particular <laughs> moment, like sees death stalking him at every turn. And it's like, that's death, that's death, that's death. And Lisa's like, that's not death grandpa. That's the cat. Um, and I, but, but I do feel like this movie is about death. Uh, and it, and in two big ways, one is um, the, the the physical, biological death that is just waiting for Butch and Sundance from the beginning of this movie. Like everybody knows that 
these two guys are getting ready to die. And they keep being told they're about to die. Um, yeah. Catherine Ross is very explicit. Like, I'm going to be there to watch you die. She quits at the end because she can see that they're about to die. Like, we don't actually see them die, but they're dead. Um, and and, and I, in some ways, the, 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 the intellectual property that I think this movie actually has the most in common with is the the Tom Stoppard play Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh-huh. um, because it... I, th- I think in a similar way to that play, this movie is challenging the idea that its central characters have any agency. There's actually nothing they can do to avoid the story that is in front of them. The whole movie is about them trying to escape. Um, literally for a while as they try to flee from this gang of searchers that's out to find them, then they hop continents, then they try different vocations. Everything is about them trying to avoid the fate that comes to them and there is no avoiding it. Um, That resonates for me as sort of an intellectual idea. And I think it's actually where this movie succeeds the most is not as a Western or as a, um, um, a sort of new Hollywood format, formal inversion, but as a sort of mid 20th century intellectual closet drama, kind of like <laughs> Rosencrantz or like you're waiting for Godot's. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think this is, I think that's actually where this movie is best. It's as, absurd, right? It's the absurdity of all things. Yeah. 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 And it, they've put it against a bunch of classical Hollywood tropes, but that's not just because they use nice cameras doesn't mean that this isn't a movie that actually belongs on an empty stage with two actors, um, which I think is kind of where its heart is. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way, but I think you're right that it, I mean, Catherine Ross plays a sort of some marginal role in this, in this movie, but her, her character does not drive plot in any way. Not that there's a lot of plot in this movie to begin with, but um, but I, you could you could see this as a stage play in some sense, right? Where it's it's Butch and Sundance at various different points where they have to have conversations about how they escape. Yeah, right. Which is which is how they which is the 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 plot driving mechanism of the movie. Which is Sundance goes, well, what's the plan? And Butch goes, well, here's the plan. But that plan doesn't work. Yeah, even though throughout the movie they continue to come across opportunities where they might escape right where they don't have to go to bolivia right they spend all of this like or they don't have to rob banks of bolivia there's other opportunity in other parts of the world where they can start anew but not be bank robbers and that's the thing that was kind of interesting to me thematically too is that this is a movie about vocation ideally like where you have opportunities for people to leave. I mean, the very one of the very first scenes of the movie is someone saying, well, it's my gang now, Butch. And Butch is like, no, it's my gang. And he fights to stay a part of the gang when here's the initial out where he no longer has to be the gang, the, the head of the, the hole in the wall gang. And he can go and do something else, but he doesn't take it. And then they go to New York and which is a strange moment in the movie that's sort of told by Ken Burns effect. <laughs> but... Um, but you get the sense that they're living this life, but why not stay there? Try to start something new or they get to Bolivia. Why not start something new there? They just, 
when we talk like theologically about call, Matt, I both really love this vision about a vocation, but there's a part of me that hates it too. Um, and the part of me that hates it, hates it because too often call is the thing that's designed to limit our imagination of what's available. So we just say, I'm called to this. And there, and then we won't look outside of that, that for ways in which our particular set of sets of gifts might be of use in the wider world. And this is the frustrating part about this, which is like, Butch is affable and Sundance can shoot a gun. There are lots of places for them to exist in the world that aren't bank robbers. And yet all they can can see is their lives as bank robbers and the lack of imagination to see anything else is the tragedy of the movie. I I hear that, but I think that I'm not, I I can see that the film should have that imagination, but I'm not convinced (laughs) that it does. because of the really key sequence in Bolivia when they decide to go straight. And right. And and they decide to work as hired hands and it all goes wrong immediately. Uh, at, at which point Butch has to do what he's never actually done before, which is right. kill a man with a gun. Um and a bunch of people end up dead. And they have this like, well that's what we get for Going straight trying to be, for trying to be something that we weren't, um, and I, I, you know, maybe that is not an interpretation of the human condition that we want to agree with, but I, I'm not sure the film is critic has critical distance on Butch and Sundance's own inevitability. I, I think the film thinks. They are, um, they they are doing all they can with the hand that they've been dealt. Um, which is this is what they know how to do. Um, it kind of sucks for them that the country no longer um, offers a, a safe harbor for them to be bank robbers in. Um, <laughs> and so they're going to go to a place where they can be bank robbers safely. But it turns out even there, you can't escape. You you, you, you you can't escape. Um, maybe they can go. Yeah, you're, they are beings unto death. Yeah. A la Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, a la the characters in Waiting for Godot. They're, they're, yeah. The specter of death is coming at them. Yeah. And how the, it, maybe they can escape it for a little while. Right. Yeah. But I think that's the that's a really interesting. That I think that has some interesting overlaps with Pentecost, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. But it, it also is a scent of uh, it is a, a descent that they continue to make right they, this is a movie where they spiral yeah oh yeah and they spiral and which from a, is not new to westerns um but this does give you this does lay some track for further westerns going forward where that is the central theme about the sort of the descent into hell whether it's sort of learning from dante or for butch cassidy and the sundance kid like there there is no escape abandon abandon all hope ye who enter here um which gives which like makes the friendship at the heart of the movie for me kind of the redemptive part of it 
Yeah, yeah, sure. Which, and this is what I want to talk to you from a theological standpoint, which is watching this movie, I was taken by their friendship. I just, I like, whenever Butch and Sundance were talking, I enjoyed this movie. Um, friendship as a subject, at least always kind of, it gets to me. And the very typical ways in, I mean, I just watched it in like Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Matt, where, which, which I thought was, it had some had some problems, but at the very heart of it, it's like two people becoming friends. And I'm like, hey, I like that. That always will appeal to me. I will say um, I liked Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid more than I liked Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, give, it, I'm gonna give it that that credit today. <laughs> I liked it more than that. But but part of the reason I liked it more than that is because look, it was just two dudes becoming friends. And I'm always into that. That said, as I think about two dudes becoming friends or anybody becoming friends, and I think about scripture, it the the scriptures are sort of like bereft of considerations about how friendship should work. Yeah. And so as you think about, like, from a theological standpoint, does does Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid give you any insight into sort of, like, how friendship should work? It's an interesting model in, in a sense because they're they're not that nice to one another. No. <laughs> they're, they're not. They don't seem like – they honestly don't seem to like one another very much in what they say to one another. They, they may or may not both be in love with the same girl, which creates its own set of complications. There's, and they're not, they, they don't, in their words, seem to support or care for one another a lot. Um, and I think there's a, a way to misread this where they're just kind of stuck with one another. They're like mm-hmm. the old West convicts who have escaped handcuffed to one another and then have to go through a, you know, a bunch of comedy sequences together. And so I, I think there's an interesting model there of like, this friendship doesn't exist in words. <laughs> it exists in this, um, this kind of faithfulness of presence, you know, I mean, I immediately go um, to Ruth and Naomi that mm-hmm. like where one of these guys goes, the other one is going to go that they're 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 inseparable, not just because their, their skills are professionally complimentary or, but because, or they're codependent in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but because they, there, there is great solidarity for them in being in this thing together, mm-hmm. um, and I think that 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 is that is helpful for me. Um, I mean, I think it's a very, for better or worse, sort of masculine stereotype of friendship. <laughs> you know, these dudes who don't know how to talk about their feelings, um, um, and who who say "I love you" in the most in the strangest possible way. Um, but I, 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 I do think you're on to something that there's there's some food here for a conversation, especially a scriptural one that we don't have a lot. Yeah, and I think that's like Ruth and Naomi. So I, I tried to make a list of like pairs in the Bible where you could conceivably call it a friendship that um, 
I don't think it, the word friend doesn't show up very often with respect to these descriptions, but there's Jonathan and David, which I think is probably paradigmatic because it, it but, most but ref- yeah. <laughs> itself complicated. Um, the history of that interpretation is, is complicated. Um, Ruth and Naomi, um, Elijah and Elisha, um, there's Paul and Barnabas, Jesus and the disciples, but even that's a weird one, but maybe Jesus and Lazarus, which is a little bit more mutual, right? Like you want a degree of mutuality here, even though they might have different roles. And that's, that's the thing that, that I don't think you always get even Elijah and Elisha, which is to me a sort of beautiful, tender relationship. Um, and not without its own complications is still sort of like mentor mentee. There is sort of a a teaching relationship that's involved here. Um, And I have to say like, I recognizing all of the ways in which this is fraught with a sort of vision of masculinity that I don't really agree with the, the idea that there's a, that there's another person who were you to get in a fight would fight with you. Mm -hmm. Like, or, you know, that like, that that still that still appeals to me in some ways. That is still a a loyalty test, um, in in my own life, and whether that comes from, I'm I'm happy to interrogate over time. Um, but there's in an insecure world where where not just men, but I think many of us are struggle to sort of articulate our feelings, especially friendship feelings, especially as adults, right? Like it's sort of remarkable how my children can, can make friends as an adult. It's much harder to make friends. And in that same vein where you're like, you know, I'm going to, I'll be with you. And it's interesting to me that that theme still shows up so presently in so many movies, whether it is your superhero movie, right. Or whether it is fast and furious or whether it's, um, whether it's any number of buddy cops that show up eventually there's a sense that loyalty is a value. Um, that's probably undervalued in this world. <laughs> So the Fast and the Furious reference is really interesting to me. I think you're dead on it, but those films interpret friendship through the metaphor of family. Right. Right. The family you choose. Dom is constantly talking about, I mean, constantly (laughs) talking about (laughs) family. And and, and part of the the amazing sort of beauty of that franchise is the way that it conceives of family as this totally diverse, beautiful collection of folks from all over who have chosen to be family with one another. And I think that's, that's amazing. And it's one of the it's it's the thing I I like about that franchise the most, especially when I when they do it well, um, <laughs> namely in Fast Five, and then it goes downhill on both sides. Fast Five's um, a masterpiece. <laughs> um, but I, I I'm sitting here wondering whether that sense of family, in some ways. <laughs> waters down or deprioritizes your project here, which is like yeah. you have to lift up friendship on its own and 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 not necessarily just have it slip over into family metaphors. Because if you opened up to like 
what I value about friendship as it shows up in scripture, a lot of the places where it shows up are actually in family relationships. Right. <laughs> like think about Jacob and Esau as friends. And there's, yeah. um, there's, th- there's a lot you could do there. Um, and instead, um, we get, we get stuck on a kind of family dynamics where I think some of those same passages could be instructive to how we think about friendship, especially um, in this moment that you've already articulated where friendship is really critical right now. And it's, and it can be especially hard for grownups. Um, and, and I think churches provide a really unique opportunity and a space where those relationships can and should flourish. And it should be one of the things that draws people into congregational connection um, if we can figure out how to talk about it. I, and part of the reason I, I, I think this is this is really helpful because it's helping me articulate something that I've been thinking about for a long time with just my with with respect to my own role as a minister, which is the the family metaphor for church, as powerful as it might be for some people, has its has its problems, um, largely because as the minister, you play a particular a role, authoritarian role, when whatever vision of family and and I, I'm not really interested in playing that role. Ultimately, um, that said, I do find myself drawn to ideas of, of friendship as models for ministry and leadership, even though I have been in many places, whether they're like boundary training workshops, whether there's just like other ministers talking who are like, I am not friends with my congregation. And I'm like, I always kind of bristle at it. And I don't, and I've never really, um, I would rather say I'm, this is not my family. These are my friends. Like, and the friendship does have a mutuality. It has a sort of, it, it does have a care. It has a loyalty. It has a, a sacrificial element to it, but it is a degree removed from family, which comes with its own sets of baggage. And so I, I think maybe part of the reason I'm drawn to this idea of friendship is because I, I want to be able to be friends with lots of people because I think that's a that's a relationship that has intrinsic good in it, but perhaps can get can end us around some of the more troubling ways in which we understand human relationship. Yeah, I think there's a lot of wisdom there. I mean, I I I I, I still. You know, I think the the concerns around using that language pastorally um, is is that it might make invisible the actual you know questions about hierarchy and authority that 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 nonetheless show up in like organizational leadership, like in a church, and that 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 can be a little complicated. It can be complicated to assume. Especially when we want to lift up friendship as a as a relationship among um, uh, as, as a relationship among non hierarchical peers, and there's something really valuable theologically about that, and especially in a Presbyterian tradition, to be able yeah, to say, right. look, you know, this is a priesthood of all believers ain't, here. Ain't, yeah. ain't, none, ain't none of us got this figured out more than anybody else, and we're in it together. Yeah. And that, that's, I think, that's really critical. And then there's still like kind of organizational, institutional realities. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like I got to make some decisions here, and I'm gonna make them yeah. without you. 
Um, but I, but I, I do really like it as a way of getting outside of, as you point out, the baggage that family metaphors can carry with them for folks for whom family is a super loaded concept. And then they show up at church and we say, welcome to our church family. And you're like, I don't know. I didn't like my last one that much. So why do I want to be in this one? And I think that that's a real thing. Um, and And I think figuring out how to use friendship as a as, as a as a means of as a, as a sort of generative metaphor for yes. the, the the connection that church can offer both practically and theologically uh is, is is a good insight which is much preferred to the sort of the the importing business metaphors oh sure. the, right like i don't want to be anyone's ceo that's not really my interest right like yeah and so, I got no entrepreneurial bone in my body. Yeah. So it's just not, I'm not interested in, in importing those metaphors. And so we're left back with the sort of relational metaphors for trying to describe this particular relationship. So yeah. I, I think that's a good place to end this conversation or this portion of the conversation, Matt, let's move to scripture. But before we do, let's just reflect on how grateful we are for the partnership that we have with Christian Century. We want to guide your attention to the great work that they're doing. They recently actually published an interesting article on Eastern University, which is very close to my house. It's only a couple miles away. Um, Eastern University is a small, traditionally Baptist school that has produced some very well-known advocates uh, for justice in this country. Um, The article is an interesting picture of what it means to be a progressive evangelical in the world. And if you're like me, who grew up in an evangelical world and didn't ever consider that those the progressive and evangelical might coexist in any real meaningful way, um, this article, you know, puts some flesh on how that happened and how Eastern has tried to, um, had to promote the, those particular mm, strains of thinking. If you're listening and don't yet subscribe to The Century, Sunday Morning Matinee listeners can get the free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, Adam, let's talk about preaching for a second. The texts for this upcoming lectionary Sunday, Pentecost Sunday, are from year B, May 23rd. We have Acts 2, The Rushing Wind, The Tongues of Fire. You know this one. This year, we also have Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones, and we have a psalm and the groaning and labor pains of Romans 8. This is a a banquet of riches for yeah. the preacher. So where does Butch and Sundance land for you other than, you know, in a stream underneath a cliff? Uh, I think let's start with Pentecost and the, and the Acts 2 passage because it's uh, it's so rich and, and it's, it's a passage I like to return to a lot. Um, it's a passage by which the disciples and the followers, these early followers of Christ, begin to consider that there is something bigger than what they've conceived of, that, that, that the, their imaginations are being broadened in this moment. And it's an, it's opportunity beyond the parochial. So if the still point of the turning world is Jerusalem, if your understanding of God is that God's presence comes primarily in Jerusalem and possibly outside of it, um, it is quite a thing 
to then receive this mandate and mission from Christ at the Ascension, but then ultimately via Pentecost to go out into the world. Um, I, I think that's really interesting, especially in light of Butch and Sundance, which is a movie about them trying to sort of find new opportunity. And I think Pentecost likewise, likewise is a story about finding new opportunity. It's about recognizing that the world that they understood is bigger, much bigger than they ever considered. And that going out, how, however scary that might be, is the call of God on people's life. I, I think the other thing that I was thinking about, and I have no idea where I would go with this, but we talk about the spirit as leading a lot, which I like. Right. Like we follow the wind, but that's not really how wind works. It's really <laughs> hard to follow. <laughs> right. Like I keep thinking, I just keep thinking about like, okay, how does a boat work? Like the, the wind comes from behind, it tails you. Um, and this is a movie about like Butch and Sundance being tailed, they're being driven, so to speak, by this, this posse that is, that is trying to find them. And all of their actions are about trying to stay out and ahead of this posse. And I wonder what would happen if in our ministries that was the consideration. It's not that we're searching or trying to be led by the spirit, but the spirit is blowing us a particular way. And our job is to stay out in front of it, um, sort of agile enough to, to, to receive that wind as it blows us into new places. So those are a couple of ideas that I was thinking about as I was thinking about the Pentecost text. What about you? I really like that spirit blowing us forward, pushing us image. I think it I think that the ch- the challenge of it is that I think in some ways we use the 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 seeking for, searching for, following the spirit metaphor to try to push back against this idea that the the um the church should just kind of surf along on the winds of cultural change um and so like you know we're we're gonna open a coffee shop because there's a coffee shop there's coffee shops all up and down the neighborhood and that's just what things are doing and so we're gonna go with the flow and I, i i think there is some healthy skepticism in congregations about that kind of reactivity um which is different than like theological discernment and ministry. Um, but I, I think there's something to your metaphor anyway, and it feels it, it, it feels like um, something that folks could could hear um, as as a word of grace that says, it, it may not be that the Holy Spirit is just is out there and you have to go find it. Um, and which leaves some some anxious room for folks to feel like, what if I can't, you know? And, it, and maybe, and maybe instead that the spirit is the thing you can already feel pushing at you. And that that I think got some has, that that's got some preaching likes. Yeah, especially considering like how tired everyone is. <laughs> right. Right, 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 right. If if this Pentecost, it's like the spirit is out in front of you. Get in your Fred Flintstone car and start like just pedaling your ass right. off to try and find it. I, I just I don't know how if that's the word of grace people need to hear right now. Yeah. Like I, I wonder if it's like 
get in the boat and put the sail up and yeah let yeah. the spirit push you to where you need to go recognizing that this is the grace of god too like that you don't always have to like work to get there sometimes it blows you in the way that it wants yeah. it wants you it wants you to go and I, I i don't know that that seems more necessary this year than yeah. perhaps previous years when when i don't that, think that, people that, have the energy for things that feels that feels like a, a righteous word adam and i'm gonna that may be what my folks hear on pentecost sunday <laughs> um i was thinking about this text in this film um under the jeopardy category of surprising second acts um where this movie sort of famously you know halfway through butch and sundance jump off the cliff they survive somewhat unexpectedly and then they run away to bolivia and there is a whole part of this movie that doesn't that defies genre in that specific sense that like this movie should end on that cliffside, but instead the real life Butch and Cassidy go to Bolivia and live for eight years um, and have a whole career as infamous bank robbers there. Um, there are studios that wanted nothing to do with this movie pre- precisely because of that screenplay choice that says like, no, actually there's a whole second part of this that um, doesn't feel right because of our expectations for the structure of the genre and yet um is sort of there to be surprising and weird like yeah christy remembered think, the end of this movie as them jumping off the cliff i remembered the bolivia section of this movie as being about seven minutes long and it's, <laughs> it's a, and it's about 45 minutes long like it is a it is a full piece um and I think there's something here in the Luke Axe turn that 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 picks up on that, where uh, it is not at all obvious from the end of Luke's gospel that there that there should be more, mm. um, that that the disciples are going to get called into this whole other thing. I think it would be in some ways reasonable for them to expect that they have now done their work by following Jesus this whole time. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you turn the page and there's like 20 odd more chapters worth of stuff they have to do. And I'm looking at my watch in the movie being like, well, we're only an hour in like there, there must be more. And I, and I, I think there's a way of preaching this turn as it doesn't it's not it's hard for us to feel the surprise of it because we know the story so well but to preach a little bit of the like that moment in the movie theater where you you kind of sneakily take out your phone to look at the watch function yeah. in the in, in the dark because you're like how much more does this have and then you realize oh crap it's got like yeah um the the difference i think being precisely in this this invocation of the spirit uh, that as, as you know the point I've already made is that there's a sort of fatalism to this movie that the, the prolonging of it only makes it worse um, and, and only sort of lives to for, for, in my reading kind of 
underscore the point that no matter where they go, their time is up. Right. Whereas in scripture, that fatalism, which hangs around the cross, gets opened up real quick, both in resurrection and in this spirit to say, yeah, there's a second act, but it doesn't have to end like the first one did. There's um, so much promise lives here because of because the disciples now have something they didn't have before. And and that that feels generative and that sort of contrast to the way that the turn in Butch Cassidy works. So I'm I'm thinking about that. It's not an unconventional reading of Pentecost, but it's just a pairing with that text. You know, I just I, I love that there's the spirit of Butch that has all of the ideas, right? Like that he has another idea and another idea. And to your point, like those ideas are all doomed in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And I think that's true for all of our ideas on one side of the cross. But the promise of Pentecost is that on the other side of the cross, those ideas can be redeemed. That, that those options, which are like, that lead straight to the grave, no longer do. And that's, that's, that's liberating, yeah, right? Like that's, that's the gospel message of, of liberation, which is these things that we thought were just death are not death any longer. Yeah. You can breathe some new life into the Valley of Dry that, Bones yeah, too, that's right? right? I mean, that, you know, that, those scriptures pair up uh, in easy, predictable and, and ways. Meanwhile, the things that you thought were, were going to just exacerbate your death are not, right? Or the people that you thought are your enemies or the people who are going to threaten you and do you harm, whether it's outside the, the walls of the, of uh, the upper room or whether it's all of these strange foreigners who are in Jerusalem for the, um, for the festival or whether it's Rome or whether it's anybody like they can be redeemed too. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it widens the possibility of the world in such a dramatic way that now there are off ramps for all sorts of things that you thought were you know, we're one way roads. And that's cool. Like I, I just, I'm, I, 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 that resonates with me, especially given how intractable so many of the problems we see are right now. What is it? It's like the German poet Friedrich Holderlin who says, um, says where the, um, where the danger is, the saving power also grows. And, and I think that that applies on, on Pentecost. Which is, I mean, a, a very Pauline observation too. Um, and it's, and it's certainly where this Roman yeah. eight, this Romans eight text goes kind of right after the lectionary quits, <laughs> you know, we get, we get, we get, we get the groaning and labor pains until now, but then shortly after that, we get to the, the kind of, the, the doxology of Romans 8 and the the power of Jesus Christ over all things, including death. And I, I, I there's 
um, th there's there's some promise there that I think lives hand in hand with this promise we're pulling out of the Pentecost narrative. Um, Paul will also make the 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 opposite claim as well, which is that the things that save you are still prone to sinfulness and brokenness. Um, the, the chapter earlier, but that that you know he he sees the the complex two-sidedness of that coin. Yeah, that's always the hard thing, right? Which is the, the vehicle of um, of redemption um, or the, the means by which it arrives can just as easily be twisted in some terrible way. And all the more reason to sort of discern the power of the spirit in the midst of it, because that will tell you whether or not you are moving towards the ends of redemption or the ends of, of bondage. Well, Adam, I hope that we have moved towards the redemptive end of this particular podcast. <laughs> and I have certainly enjoyed being your friend along <laughs> the way. You, um, I know that you would join in a bar fight that was happening on my behalf. And I appreciate that about you. Yeah, it's one of my defining characteristics, Matt. But let's move to our final segment. Uh, this is called Postludes, and it's just a chance to get another preacher thought on something else that we're reading or watching. Matt, what's your postlude this week? Well, the last episode we did was an Oscars preview, and I just wanted to do a little bit of an Oscars debrief um, from the ceremony itself. <laughs> and, and I, I kind of want to do it in the spirit, in, 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 in the honor and memory of William Goldman. I mean, you pointed out earlier in this show that one of the one of the really interesting moments happening in Butch Cassidy is that William Goldman is getting paid a big bucket of money to be a relatively high profile screenwriter for this thing. Um, there's a, we're, we're entering into a moment in Hollywood where folks are beginning to understand and appreciate all the different pieces that go into making a movie. Uh, and the different hands that go into it. Some of that gets subsumed underneath auteur theory, but still, nonetheless, there's an attention and, um, and a recognition of craft that shows up here in this in this period, both, both directors, writers, cinematographers, even sound designers um, are, are, are going to get some, some headlines in that next generation of Hollywood that, that they didn't get previously because of the way the studio system kind of subsumed everything under one large label. Um, and I think the Oscars last weekend were an embarrassment in that trend. Um, I, I have no objection in general to who won awards. I thought the sort of intimacy of putting it all at Union Station in LA was sort of interesting. Um, and I didn't object to that um, as a sort of experiment um, and don't object to it if they decide to come back to it. But what what the Oscars failed to do for me last year was, was to do any of the what I will naively call educational work that I think this ceremony can, mm -hmm. has done in the past, where when you give an award for best choreography, you ought to show some examples <laughs> of choreography. When you give an award for best sound design for a movie like Sound of Metal, which has the most some of the most interesting and original sound design I've heard in a long time, you, you ought to play a clip of what you're awarding 
when you give an award for screenplay, you ought to say a little bit about what a screenplay contributes to a movie. Uh, there were basically no clips played. And so I think the Oscars defaulted on an opportunity and a sort of periodic responsibility to help people understand why these awards matter and why all the hands that help put a movie together, why they're there and what they contribute and what they do and the sort of things that people should be interested and curious about when they go to the theaters in the first place. So that when Frances McDormand gets up and pleads with everybody to go back to the theaters to watch all the movies they just watched, well, one thing that would have sent me there would be to go see some of the craft that you just awarded if you had given me any sense of what I should be looking for when I did it. And so that is my little soapbox to the Oscars. Please play clips <laughs> when you show the nominees. I know it takes time, but it's part of, it's 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 not only enjoyable, I think it's part of your social responsibility uh, as, as we try to remember who it is that makes all this stuff. Yeah. I no, agree. That's and that's I my totally agree. I think that was a, a huge misstep and and kind of most people don't know much about sound design or art direction. Um so you're right. Like here or hair and makeup costume and all of and, you know and all of that. Production yeah. design. Like make one production design, it should have putting together the um the Hearst Castle? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Putting together Hearst Castle on screen. Oh my gosh. But like yeah. show a little clip of like what it meant to recreate the interior of that space for this movie and you get a sense of like, oh, that is some serious work. Cause you know what? You know what actually doesn't convey any meaning if you don't know what you're talking about? The words yeah, production no, that's right. design. That's exactly right. And and I think that's like for what it's worth, the Academy Awards is a lot of things, but it it has to have some measure of didacticism at the center of it so that it can help people understand yeah. why this particular um, person, persons exceeded so highly in their craft. And, yeah. um, and it might be one thing if you just want to like have actors talk about actors I guess we all know like what an actor is supposed to look like. Um, but with, with the, the, the deeply artistic and creative work that was done by people whose names you've never heard, like I, that was just a, a failure. <laughs> so um, I'm with you. Um, I'm, I'm going to talk about something completely different um, just because um, I'm teaching a, at the church in our Bible study that the church wanted to talk about heaven and hell and ideas of salvation, which has actually been quite a interesting thing to study right now. And I, and I've appreciated the opportunity to do it. Um, one of the passages that has been dominating my uh, imagination right now is the sons of Korah passage, which is in, um, in numbers, numbers 16, I think. Um, and it's the passage where a group of people, they begin to question Moses' leadership and then God opens a rift in the world. <laughs> and then that, that earthquake swallows up these people and they die. <laughs> and it, it it's one of those like very weird passages in numbers that no one ever reads because no one ever reads numbers um, because they only think it's uh, um, 
genealogies. And for the most part, it is genealogies, but there are all sorts of weird stories between the genealogies and numbers. And um, this is one of them. And so I, I sort of just fell down this rabbit hole trying to understand what exactly is going on in this passage because it's so interesting. And I happened upon um, a book that's written about leadership from the perspective of Moses by Joseph Soloveitchik, who's um, maybe he's among the most important 20th century Orthodox rabbis in the United States. Um, and it is a fascinating read about leadership written before there was an uh, a sort of like leadership studies type of field, the, the, a field that I find like whenever I read it to, to give me hives. But in it is a very thoughtful consideration of the text and then trying to consider how one leads when you both want to preserve that God's, that the dignity of God rests in everybody. And yet there are particular people who have gifts that ought to be lifted up. And so Soloveitchek was, was really wrestling with the sort of the communal and the individual. And I have found this book to be really helpful in trying to consider the sort of the, the tensions in our world that reside around how we understand us as one, as corporate groups, whether it's a small community, whether it's a nation, um, and what are the rights and uh, and that are afforded to us in that, and then how do we lift up those who have particular skills and gifts to exercise them for the good of God's world? Um, so, if you're looking for a leadership book, it's um, the 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 book itself is uh, is called Vision and Leadership, or uh, uh, it's really good. It's better than any of the other um, books on leadership that you would read in the church right now. So go read Soloveitchik and his his rabbinic interpretation of the Sons of Korah passage to learn about um, questions of leadership in the 21st century. Um, really interesting, really interesting stuff. That's very cool. I, I definitely has not been on my <laughs> It radar. was not on um, mine uh, like 10 days ago. I'm glad to put it on there. Uh, friends, that about wraps it up for this episode. If you like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page and tell us how we got it wrong. We love your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at sundaymorningmatinee.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and to the fine editing skills of Derek Weston. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Burt's Bicycle Ballads. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Matt. 